Welcome to Toil the Week in Health Law, the CBO scoreless podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on June 20th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host, who now denies he's under any kind of investigation, who is... Frank Pasquale, law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week, to Twill, we greet Professor Jamie King from the University of California Hastings College of Law in San Francisco. Professor King is the co-director of the UCSF-UC Hastings Consortium on Science, Law, and Health Policy, the executive editor of the Source for Competitive Healthcare, and the co-director of the Concentration on Law and Health Sciences. She's a widely respected scholar on healthcare regulation and markets, with particular expertise in healthcare pricing and antitrust. Great to finally have you on the pod, Jamie. Thanks, Nick and Frank. It is my total pleasure to to join you for 12 this week. Um, I've been looking forward to it for quite some time. So thank you so much for having me on. I teach uh, as best I can some basic antitrust law in my intro to health law and policy course. Um, both the students and I find it one of the more challenging parts <laughs> of the course. And I think part of that difficulty is that there are so many sort of sets of overlapping relationships. You know, there are those that essentially involve relationships between providers into say and their pharmaceutical and other providers. And then there are the more frequently failing markets market relationships, you know, arrows uncertainty between patients, insurers, employers, and providers. And I just wondered how you start out sort of explaining healthcare markets and their regulation. When I set out to teach this stuff, I start at the very beginning and I start by talking about healthcare providers in general and how, you know, how physicians have slowly over time joined physician groups and how hospital systems have slowly over time started, to, hospitals have started to form hospitals systems. And then as we talk about the the business relationships between them, I start to slowly highlight the relationships um, that can create problems with competition regulation. And then we move from talking about the business relationships and healthcare into directly into the regulation of antitrust and how those business relationships, the mergers that might seem um, helpful to a business relationships, how they can get into trouble with antitrust regulation and where those lines are drawn. And we start with, you know, the very basic statutes, the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, and just kind of walk through where those, what are the red flags for um, for those organizations and, and providers in general. One of the things I stress in, in teaching health law is uh, what I call health law exceptionalism, um, how so much of, of what we have is is unique to, to healthcare uh, law, healthcare markets, healthcare regulation. And I've never really found too much exceptional uh, in the antitrust area, except perhaps at the enforcement level and the guidelines. I think that's right. I think that there's not too much in in healthcare antitrust per se that is exceptional. The issue has been largely how it's been treated by enforcers and by courts over the years. So um, starting back in the 1990s, there was the FTC and the DOJ lost a series of cases trying to challenge hospital mergers. And when those cases were lost, I think it became sort of common knowledge. I think the FTC sort of really tried to rethink what it was, its approach to 
hospital antitrust challenges that it was bringing. And there was a general sense among the enforcement community that hospital cases were just not winnable. And so there was, there was a series of losses. And then there was a period of about 15 years of quietude where there were no cases that were being brought by the FTC. And, and that it was during that time that we saw a lot of consolidation in the healthcare system. But it was also during that time that we saw economics researchers really try to dig into this and figure out a different way to approach explaining how hospital mergers were in fact anti-competitive and leading to price increases as opposed to being, and being pro-competitive or competitively neutral. And during that, so once they did that, um, they ended up coming into enforcers came into cases with different economic evidence and that really turned the tide and has led to a, a real uptick and successes in these hospital merger challenges in more recent years yes it is really interesting to see you know the recent revival of antitrust both in terms of the hospital merger scenarios and in terms of the recent uh, doj action with respect to etna and one of the things i was just sort of thinking about uh though, is that it seems to me from a health economics perspective, there might be a couple of reasons why healthcare antitrust could be its own distinct subfield. And the first, I would guess, would be the extraordinary complexity of the market, right? That you have this sort of triple layer of uh, the patient or the insured person having to go through their insurer, and then the insurer in turn, maybe the choice of insurer is set by the employer. So there's sort of a level of complexity. The second being the role of quality rationales, because it seems as though we have a healthcare reform apparatus that was at war with itself in some ways, part of it calling for integrated delivery systems and part of it calling for even uh, consolidated insurers to try to exercise some sort of a bargaining power vis-a-vis uh, providers. And then others saying, um, no, these quality rationales are illusory. And moreover, when insurers get bigger, all they do is they sort of help themselves to more of the producer-consumer surplus, they don't really uh, share that wealth. And I'm wondering, Katami, in terms of your thoughts, I mean, is are those aspects of healthcare antitrust that could distinguish it from the rest of antitrust, or are the overarching uh, principles of American competition law sufficient to uh, deal with that particularity? So I think there's no doubt that healthcare markets are some of the most complex out there, but I'm not sure that they are entirely unique. I mean, I think, I think that healthcare antitrust is, is largely a, a pretty big quagmire. But at the same time, the two-sided market that you're describing where there's competition for consumers that are picking their health plans and the effect of a merger on that particular individual consumer. And then there's also the other side of the market where the effect of a provider merger might impact how it might impact an insurer trying to build a network. Those two-sided, that kind of a two-sided market exists in healthcare. And it, and it was the thing that made the difference in FTC challenges more recently. That was, that was really a big factor in helping courts understand how a particular hospital merger might try drive up costs um, was by reflecting its impact on insurers. So I think that that adds a layer of complexity, but I don't I don't entirely think that it's unique. There are other two-sided markets um, in our system. It just takes more time to, and, and quite honestly, more money and more research and more people looking at it to really untangle this very tricky web um, in healthcare.
healthcare. The other thing that really makes bringing a healthcare merger challenge um, very complicated is just the lack of access to prices and the protection that is that is um, afforded to those to negotiated prices and agreements and what's in contracts, what's unwritten between providers and insurers, and that it's very difficult to get your hands on that information. And I think that makes bringing a challenge also very complicated. On the quality measure, I think that it is there are these efficiency challenges that these efficiency defenses that get brought in a lot of times. And I think that those were very successful in the past. And I think that we are just starting to see courts um, really understand oftentimes through retrospectives. So where a merger was allowed to go through and then how that merged entity has acted over time through those kinds of retrospective studies have demonstrated that a lot of times those efficiencies aren't realized in the way that they were projected to be realized. Or as you said, the cost savings aren't shared either in lower or sort of stabilized provider rates, or if it's the insurer that's merging, um, if it's an insurance merger, those efficiencies aren't realized in lower premiums. And so I think that it has raised a lot of questions about how those quality efficiencies are actually being used, or are they just sort of a smokescreen for a desire to gain more market power? Following on from Frank's comment about policies that actually favor coordination, collaboration, and so on, Kate Baker and Helen Levy had a great piece in the New England Journal a couple of years ago on the tension between coordination and competition. And it has a great chart that I use in class that sort of ranks ACOs and bundled payments and so on on that curve uh, between coordination and competition. They had price transparency as neutral on their curve, I think. And you've done some great work on on transparency, including the uh, piece you co-authored in the William & Mary policy review. Can you lead us through a sort of a price transparency model, what it might look like and how it could work or not? Price transparency is is one of those things that it, it can provide a lot of assistance to consumers in very specific circumstances. And so that makes it a useful tool, but it is certainly not a panacea. So when you're thinking about a price transparency measure, the first thing you have to decide is price transparency for whom? Are you helping a an individual consumer make a better choice about what treatment option to to have based on the price that they are going to pay. That's what I think most people think of when they think of price transparency. And what we, the research on that um, has basically shown that when you provide, make that information accessible to a patient. So if you go to this provider, you're going to pay this much of a copay, or if you go to that provider, you're going to pay that much of a copay, that patients will use that information, but they only use it for a certain type of service that's known as a shoppable service. And shoppable services are things like lab tests that most patients will assume are uh, substitutable for one another. If you have an MRI at this lab versus an MRI at this lab, it's basically the same. If you have a blood test at one lab or another, those things patients tend to think of as shoppable. What they don't tend to think of as shoppable is, say, a surgeon who's going to do um, you know, surgery on you or your child or someone who's going to provide a particular procedure. Then patients 
tend to use that price transparency information a little bit less or, or significantly less. They tend, we tend to rely on our friends, our family members, other people who have had those procedures, use that particular doctor, use that particular hospital to make those decisions. Um, the other thing that inhibits patients from using price transparency tools as much as they otherwise would is that we're often very insulated in terms of what we pay. People who have insurance pay a copay, they pay, um, or they pay some percentage of coinsurance rate, 20%, 10% for particular services, but they're not paying the full freight. And that insulates us from making those choices um, entirely on cost. So that's one form of price transparency initiative. And the other thing that, that makes that challenging is in order to give patients truly and consumers truly useful information, you have to give them information that is relevant to them. Giving them the charge master rate that the hospital is sort of, it's their sort of baseline rate um, that is not the negotiated rate with your particular insurer and also doesn't reflect how much that individual person would be paying, then becomes, um, that's pretty useless to a person. They might be interested in saving the hospital system money, but at the same, or the, their insurer money, but at the same time, if they pay $100 per procedure um, for both doctors, it's going to be less influential for them, which one overarchingly costs more. And so a lot of the initiatives that were targeted at consumers weren't very effective in, in swaying consumer behavior behavior that much. I think we've started to see more consumers um, using this information over time, but only as it has become more personalized to them. So that brings me to the second kind of price transparency initiative that you might that you might think of or look at, which is price transparency on a more um, on a more global level where um, or a statewide level where an entity would have access to the negotiated prices between insurers and providers for you know for the for the panacea of prices of, of services that are being offered, right? And so that kind of price transparency really allowing health policy researchers, health services researchers, health um, health legislators look at what we're paying and what those negotiated prices are and have an understanding of what is driving price increases in the market and what types of policy initiatives are effective and sort of how and why. That is a potentially very useful tool. Um, but it has not been the target of a lot of the price transparency research. And that is where the antitrust concerns come in. Because if you make those negotiated prices public in any kind of way, there is a there is a fear that there might be collusion between providers and insurers in setting prices. Even with, with more perfect information, do you think there'd be much movement in prices? I mean, I'm reading Elizabeth Rosenthal's um, An American Sickness at the moment. And one of the sort of the early gotcha moments in the book, I think, is when she explains how little incentive insurers seem to have to negotiate better rates, which I thought was completely counterintuitive until I read her explanation. Yes. So I think, um, I think you're totally right. And I, I love Elizabeth Rosenthal and, and her recent book is, is wonderful in just bringing a lot of these things to light. She's absolutely right that insurers don't have and much of any incentive to keep their rates low. They just need to be the lowest of the group. And there's lots of different ways for them to acquiesce to higher, to paying providers higher prices as long as they have the lowest price amongst their group. So I think that exists. And I, I'm not sure that even with perfect information, as you say, we're going to see a lot of competition. The reality is, is that consolidation um, has occurred across the board in many different ways in healthcare. And that consolidation is driving a lot of price. If you don't have competition, if you don't have a competitor to undercut you on price, 
and there are high barriers to entry, it's going to be very challenging for anyone to come in and encourage you to lower your rates in any kind of way. And so I think that what we're seeing is a massive failure of competitive markets. And, and yet we seem to have a continued attempt to make them work, but they continue, they continue to not work. And so as a result of that, perfect information can do somewhat, but it's not going to, it's not going to um, solve all of our problems in any stretch. And it may, it may lead to further collusion in other types of markets. Yes. And I have a few comments there. Um, and I'd love to discuss further this, the idea of how far uh, an ideal of perfect competition could help uh, cure what ails the U.S. healthcare system. I first want to say that the the source on healthcare price and competition um, that you run, Jamie, uh, is fantastic. And I will definitely put it in the show notes and uh, be sharing that with our listeners. It's a really useful resource, uh, totally up to date on lots of these uh, issues. Um, oh, thanks. Oh, yeah. No, this is, is such a good resource. And my two questions would be, one is, um, I'm wondering about the type of outcomes we want to see from transparency. I want to put forward the idea that possibly the best outcome would be that the more we make prices transparent, the more we incentivize providers to shift from, say, a high-margin, low-volume model to a low-margin, high-volume model. Because we can imagine a future where the lowest-cost providers will get tons of patients, the highest-cost folks will get less, and that will sort of drive down prices. The worry, I think, we have, though, is that to the extent that quality is as transparent as price, we can imagine a bidding war. So that it's not really the fact that, um, it's not really the situation that um, people are being driven to low margin, high volume, but that the providers who are best know they are the best and they charge more, and the providers who are the worst can charge less, and then we have this sorting equilibrium where the richest uh, folks end up with the best providers and the poorest end up with the worst. And I'm wondering, just in terms of your experience of the transparency literature and other academic work in the area, are there good ways of guarding against the sorting equilibrium of tiering care and promoting the uh, low margin, uh, high volume uh, version of price transparency? I think that there are. But I think that in order to do that, you, you what you need to do is actually just make high value care available to people in ways that, I mean, that really the ACA tried to do by providing providing um, cost-sharing subsidies and premium support to make high-value care sort of equally available. But I think that your your concern about pairing price and quality information and then having the high-quality providers just increase their price is still a better situation than what we have now, which is there's no pairing between quality and cost. And so what we see is oftentimes high quality providers end up charging less money. We see the Mayo Clinic being very efficient. We see Kaiser Permanente, um, especially in Northern California, having really high quality scores and being a lower, a lower priced entity. But we, and we see higher priced entities most oftentimes being a represent, their prices are a representation of market power as opposed to quality. And, but being Americans, we are, we are used to the free market and we think higher price means better quality. And so a lot of times patients will say, well, this, even when they see pricing information, they'll say, well, this doctor will provide my surgery for $5,000 and this doctor wants to provide it for $12,000. And then there's this doctor in the middle that will provide it for $6,000. 
$7,000. Maybe I don't want to pay $12,000, but I'm not going to go with the lowest price provider. I think I'll, I'll go with the seven. It's like people who pick the second cheapest wine on the list, right? <laughs> and yes, I think that happens a lot. And I think that that's what, ha- that's what we run the risk of in just providing cost information, that what we need to do is provide good pairings of cost and quality information to encourage those low quality, high cost providers to bring their prices down to become more competitive. And if we end up paying high quality providers more, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. The challenge then is once we're, once we say, okay, we're willing to provide high quality providers, we may, we may be willing to pay them a little bit more, but how do we make sure everyone has access to that, to those providers? And then that becomes a providing people with insurance and subsidies for their insurance in different ways to make sure that they still have access to those, those providers. And I think that's, that's going to have to come from a different set of policies concerns, but I don't think keeping that information separate is, is the way to go. But if you have a sort of general skepticism, I'm putting words into your mouth, about sort of demand side reforms, does it follow that we should be doing more on the supply side, that that we, we should be hitting actual prices and not merely transparency about prices, for example? Yes. So I am, I am fairly skeptical of demand side reforms. And it's not that I don't want people to have good information about the choices that they're making. I absolutely do. I want them to know, to have access, you know, as much as they, as much as possible to, if I choose this provider, I'm going to pay this much. If I choose this provider, I'm going to pay this much and allow them to make good choices. I really think that price is a factor when people decide what medical care they're going to get. And I think they should have access to make it a part of, a part of that decision. However, I don't think that people always, I don't think we can put that entirely on patients. I think if we're thinking about ways to curb costs in the healthcare system, it's going to need to be based on fixing the incentives within the provider and insurer markets. And I think on that side, we should be trying to give providers incentives to lower their overarching costs in order to compete. And some of that can be done through price transparency. I mean, one of the things that um, has been done by a consumer group, um, Clear Health Costs, which is run by, by Jean Pinder, she created a website and just started posting up the prices that people were paying for services in various areas. And then what she found was all these providers were calling in and saying, I will provide, you know, I will provide this lab test. I will provide a prenatal visit for $90 in this, in this jurisdiction. And she basically created a cash market outside of the insurance system for healthcare goods and services where providers were willing to, um, you know, just share a cash price. And, and do that. So I think there's some things we can do through price transparency with providers. But as more and more providers get sort of become a part of these larger hospital systems, provider groups, all these provider systems, I think their ability to independently move their price is going to be, um, is going to be more challenging. And we're going to have to think about more innovative ways to affect healthcare, healthcare prices. And I think that may have to come from a regulatory angle by controlling the prices themselves. So another topic that we wanted to go over was the prospects for vertical integration in healthcare and how antitrust authorities should think about that. And I know from uh, your presentation at uh, the Health Law Professors Conference back at Georgia State a few weeks ago that you've been really keeping uh, an eye on the latest work in uh, industrial organization, other uh, economic research on how the healthcare industry is organized, um, current trends and shifts there. 
And I'm wondering if you could just share your perspective, Jamie, on some of the, the role of vertical integration, both in potentially containing costs and some of the pitfalls that could be involved there. Vertical integration in healthcare can be a really good thing. And, and the idea behind it from a healthcare organizational perspective is one that we should aspire to. Um, if you look at the earliest models of vertical integration, if you look at Kaiser Permanente, if you look at Group Help up in Seattle, if you look at Geisinger, they do a lot of things right and they save money doing it. And so the idea that you're going to have providers intimately connected with a hospital system so that a patient's medical records are at the fingertips of every single provider that they see and that the you know, if you show up in the emergency room, they immediately know all the drugs that you've been prescribed, what you're taking, how regularly you're taking them. All of that is incredibly useful. The fact that, you know, when I had a serious medical condition, you know, several years ago, I had my OBGYN and my neurologist and my cardiologist all jumped on a phone call together and and tried to map out what were possible treatment solutions. And I think that that would not happen in any other kind of system. And so I think there are huge efficiencies to be gained from vertical integration. But vertical integration is not the same thing as a merger, as healthcare consolidation. You do not have to formally merge to share electronic medical records. You don't have to formally merge to implement a data a data management system. You can you can share those costs and you can gain those efficiencies without undergoing a full merger. And we call um in the in the antitrust world they call those uh merger specific um, you know, are they merger specific efficiencies? And so if you don't have to physically merge to gain them, then, then a merger isn't necessary in that, in that, in that space. And so I think that's really important to separate the idea of a vertical integration, which I think can be a really good thing, but also hard for entities to, to do. And then the vertical, you know, so-called vertical merger itself. So a vertical, a lot of times the literature will refer to a vertical merger as when a hospital system buys or a hospital itself buys a physician group. And it's a little bit different than a traditional vertical merger because a vertical merger is typically when one entity will buy either an upstream or downstream thing in the economic chain. So, um, you know, buying the, the maker of the part that you need to create your, um, your chair or your widget or whatever. And in, and in healthcare, it's a little bit different because a, a provider group is not it's not downstream in the economic chain from a hospital, but there are some connections, right? Those providers will then refer patients back to a hospital. So it's a, it's a relationship, but it's not, it's not, it's not perfectly aligned as a vertical relationship. But I think that there are efficiencies to be had, but there are also real risks that come with a vertical, with greater consolidation and, and more mergers in the healthcare space. Because what has been shown is that a lot of those mergers are supposedly based on obtaining efficiencies. But what we end up seeing is that the data is starting to produce evidence that a lot of hospital mergers with physician groups are increasing prices, not only for the physician practice, but also for the hospital. And so we're not we're not realizing a lot of the efficiencies um, that were originally hoped for. You uh, took part in a, in the Yale and Health Affairs Blog Symposium last year. And uh, with our good friend, Erin uh, Fizet-Brown, you uh, authored a piece on vertical care integration on the role of the states and sort of the middle of that article was about Gobe. Why was that such a major blow to the states taking 
um, important roles here? I think the Gobey decision is going to have reverberations throughout the healthcare world for years to come if we don't figure out how to um, how to sort of release the states and state reform efforts from from the ERISA preemption. So basically, the Gobey case said that Vermont could not require insurers to and all payers within the state to report claims to its all payer claims database um, because ERISA would preempt that for self-insured employers within the state. And so ERISA preemption basically extends to prevent any state from passing a law that is related, that relates to an employee benefit plan and would regulate that employee benefit plan in any way. And so through a whole host of um, things, basically what it ended up saying was that self-insured employers, which are, I think, 60% of, um, cover 60% of employees within the country. It's a huge amount of people. All of their information would be accepted from, would not be required to be put into these all-payer claims databases for research purposes and review for health policy reasons. But what the implications of that bill says basically that states cannot pass reform bills that would affect insurance plans run by um, self-insured employers sort of throughout the state. So any kind of state health reform effort is going is potentially going to be preempted, whether it's a price transparency law that affects all um, insurance plans, whether it's a requirement that you submit all your claims to an all-payer claims database. Um, there's a whole host of things, whether it's price setting, there's a whole host of things that states are not, are probably, are eager to do, but are also not able to do for fear of ERISA preemption. Indeed, Erin, at the uh, Health Teachers Conference gave a wonderful um, paper on surprise billing laws. And, you know, the last bullet on, on her slide set was, but ERISA. Um, and Frank, we've come, we've come back to talking about uh, the, the, the revival of ERISA too many times recently. We have. And it's fascinating also to hear uh, the discussions of the uh, California single payer plan uh, that that may founder entirely on ERISA issues. And um, it's strange, too, when I look at some of the current reporting on the Senate health care bill and the reimposition of lifetime limits or the potential for uh, allowing insurers to uh, reimpose lifetime limits. Again, it all comes back to this uh, federal uh, control over a large part of the market. Yeah. I think that's right. And I, and I think that given it's sort of this ironic situation where the Trump administration um, is is eager to give a lot of the power of regulating healthcare back to the states. And yet you've got this, um, this tension with ERISA that would essentially be preventing the states from taking any major steps in terms of healthcare reform, whether it's um, prohibiting surprise billing or engaging in single payer or setting rates or doing a whole host of things. And so I think that one, the thing that could single handedly free up healthcare reform, um, across the country would be to find some way to limit, um, to limit ERISA's preemption reach. The ironic, I mean, the other ironic piece of this is that when ERISA passed, none of this was really, these implications were really thought about. It was much more about employee pensions and employee retirement benefit plans, not um, much at all about healthcare. And the reverberations of it have been just enormous. Yes. And I, I wish we could speak further about it because I think there's so many interesting aspects of how fragmented the healthcare policy landscape gets uh, in part because of the interplay between, say, ERISA and 
the Karen Ferguson and, you know, these very artificial distinctions um, between laws regulating benefit plans versus laws regulating insurance, et cetera. Um, but I think rather than delving into that, I just wanted to um, go on to one final topic, which was part of your uh, talk uh, in Atlanta, Jamie, discussed what I thought was such an interesting angle on bad forms of competition by insurers. And I've recently become obsessed with some of uh, the economist William Baumol's work on unproductive entrepreneurship or bad entrepreneurship. And during your talk, you, I think you discussed in the California market the ways in which some insurers could be creating a Swiss cheese effect where they would essentially try to take over or try to merge with or consolidate with um, care delivery systems that could knock a hole in other people's networks so that it would require, say, employers to deal with the insurer that had somehow strategically knocked a hole in someone else's network. It reminded me actually of this old business school book called Structural Holes or About Structural Holes. And I was wondering if you could discuss that a little bit about these new incredibly complex forms of competition and the role that they play in uh, healthcare markets now. Absolutely. So the the theory behind all of this is, is the network hole theory. And the idea is that rather than providers and insurers making these holes, it's it's a provider system that's sort of spreading out across, um, across wide areas. And it doesn't have to be just within California. I mean, we're seeing these massive provider systems sort of grow all over the country. And so it went from just being, you know, a hospitals, a hospital system having two or three hospitals to then acquiring several more. Um, to now we're seeing healthcare systems sort of span both hospitals and provider organizations in wide range of ge- different geographic markets. And what that allows them to do when they are negotiating with an insurer is to negotiate with them um, in some instances on an all or nothing basis, but in other instances, even if they even if they negotiate separately, they have this much greater um amount of market power because they know that when an insurer is trying to build a network, they can then say, well, it, you, we're going to charge you these prices across the board. And if they're negotiating on an all or nothing basis, they know that the insurer, in order to build the network, I mean, I know that California um, through the Knox Keene Act has very, um, very high network adequacy requirements. And so they know that they have to have certain hospitals in and certain provider groups in those networks in order to make the network viable. And they can use that to drive up costs for all the providers within the system because they can simply say, well, if you need these hospitals or these provider groups, you're going to pay all of us at a higher rate in order to have them in the system because they can knock out several holes in the system if they pull them all out. Now, I think the notion um, that you're describing is really interesting because we are starting to see a lot more provider insurer um, mergers and affiliations and uh, collaborations on a range of different things. And I think the network whole theory works equally well here when you have alliances between, say, a major provider organization and a major insurer in a specific area that can allow, that can enable that one insurer to harm its competition by basically having the provider group that it's affiliated with not affiliate with the other insurer group. And that's a way for them to not only harm their competition, but really keep other um, keep other insurers out of the market. And that's what we've seen in, in the Pittsburgh area with UPMC and Highmark and West Penn. Those guys have been up to a lot of that um, in, in the last several decades in terms of just keeping other entities out of the market. It does make you wonder about a public option. It? <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> 
It's so complicated and there are so many opportunities for collaborations and handshake deals and agreements that are not written and that it allows for a lot of this behavior to go un unnoticed, uncounted, and makes it very hard to prove in a courtroom about how prices are increasing in different spaces and why they're increasing. Are they increasing for any, com for any competitive reasons or are they increasing because you now offer these new efficiencies or you now offer these new benefits and or is this entity just better at negotiating now that it's much bigger and has, it has other um, added features and so I think that a lot of the attempts that we're making on a regulatory basis um, on a consumer basis with through you know a host of a host of realms I think a lot of the attempts that we're making um, are really just scratching the surface and picking off trying to pick off little little things when what we really need is a is a massive scale reform. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor King, who is on Twitter. And there you can find her at Prof Jamie King. That's P-R-O-F-J-I-M-E-K-I-N-G. Thank you so much for joining us, Jamie. That was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. That was a lot of fun. We post our show notes at tool.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank is at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.